Welcome to the Neural Network. I'm Nick, neuroscientist, neurophysiologist out at the Center for Integrative Brain Research at Seattle Children's. Today with me, I have a wonderful special guest, Christopher, how do you pronounce it, Rodazakis? Rodazakis, yeah, pretty close. Rodazakis, I got it. So uh, I met Christopher quite a, a couple of years ago, I guess now, uh, doing some live chats about different science and, and health things. And uh, he caught my eye as being a very knowledgeable person when it came to something that I know minimal about, which is fascia, the other side of the musculoskeletal world that is often skipped, honestly. Like in, in all of the medical school courses that I went through, we didn't really cover fascia at all. I mean, we covered a little bit of connective tissue type of stuff, but you know, it's pretty much ignored, Absolutely. at least in the, you know, the allopathic type of thing. So um, how did you exactly get into all the fascial world? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, you know, I personally have scoliosis and that was sort of my journey. I kind of figured that out when I was like an adult, like late adolescent, early teen. And I was basically told that, you know, the one path to fixing it was surgery. And I really didn't want to do that. So I found and, and discovered uh, soft tissue work as a means of sort of bringing myself pain relief, but then discovered Rolfing a few years later, uh, structural integration work for the uh, people in the audience is basically looking at the body as a holistic uh, structure. And we use terms like biotensegrity to describe it. So tensegrity to kind of backtrack is a kind of structural um, architects use it as a means of kind of creating uh, buildings and bridges with like ropes, pulleys, and you can do fantastic things with this new, um, relatively new, it's been around for a hundred years, but, uh, this new model of, of tension and force transmission capacity called tensegrity. So, so it's anyway, like, it's like athletic bondage. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because uh, it used to be very painful. So uh, rolfing was known for being like this insanely painful thing. What, what is rolfing exactly? It's basically just soft tissue work, but under the oh. guise of restoring uh, symmetry. So, for example, um, you know, there'll be the beginning part of the session where you're standing there uh, and you do a few motions and the objective is to assess whether you're balanced between left and right, whether there's sort of lift and loft in the structure, if it looks like your feet are actually underneath the hips, and if the hips are underneath the shoulders. It's kind of basic, but it's pretty profound in how they then choose to use soft tissue work to restore the body's sort of uh, tensional balance. Uh, so, so basically, someone comes into you, and they're, they're in pain, as you know, most individuals are. You know, yeah. at least for my side of the world, studying opioids, it's you look at the amount of chronic pain patients or the patients that are seeking care for chronic pain. It's I mean, it'll, it blows my mind every time you look at the statistic. It's like I, I don't have the statistic in front of me, but it's, you know, I think we could say more than half of the, you know, almost a quarter, half of the population is all just looking for pain relief just from general everyday I wake up and I hurt and I, and I used to, you know, when I was in, in college or even in undergrad as a somewhat athletic 20, you know, late 20 year old, I, I would wake up, you know, you could get hit by a train the day before. And as long as you got a couple hours of sleep in a Gatorade, right. you're, you're good to go. Yeah. And so when you're going through all of this training, even with, you know, especially during graduate school and stuff, when you're going through the medical school courses, you don't necessarily feel that chronic pain and it's almost hard initially to put yourself in the patient's position. So, so basically they're, you know, a little tangent, but they, they're in pain, they come to you and somehow you have to do a first assessment. And so you start by figuring out what, like what makes up the symmetry? Is it like stiffness of, you know, the connective tissue or is it actual like bone symmetry or yeah, I mean, it's connective tissue holds the bones. So this is going back to the conversations of what like holds us up, what gives us form. And so the definition I like to use for fascia is it's a fluid-filled structural matrix that gives us our form. It holds the circulatory system. It holds the uh, nervous system. It holds pretty much everything. Um, but it's a communication network. That's also what makes it very profound. So going back to sort of my Rolfing story, uh, it gave me the ability to be pain-free, um, 
to kind of gain an understanding of my body and, and my capacity to control it or sort of uh, enhance it, so to speak. And, um, you know, it, it, I, it was something that then I was so intrigued with. I was like, can I combine the two things? Because my uh, background is obviously with strength training. And I wanted to combine, um, you know, again, which I saw your Instagram the other day of you jumping in the ice hole. Oh, you're yeah. looking, you're looking jacked lately. <laughs> Thanks, my man. <laughs> that's all gymnastics based, but that's a different, you know, we can go down that rabbit hole. But yeah, I mean, for those of you who haven't seen Nick, I mean, Nick is, that's a big compliment coming from Nick because Nick is uh, pretty jacked. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, to go from being the skinny, scrawny uh, kid whose ribs used to sublux just by breathing uh, to now being strong and, and truly pain-free in my 40s, it's pretty awesome. Like, I'm very excited to share that journey and also to kind of like, you know, teach alongside it. Like, I have to be the living embodiment of the stuff I research. And if I'm not, then I'm kind of disingenuous. But fascia is a big cornerstone of that. And I'm very happy to talk to you. Yeah, no, and it's this is fascinating because, like I said, it's it's a part of medicine and and science that I didn't never I never really had much of a background in, and so I know we've had our our debates over the the years because I was I you know I've always been so confused in in understanding how it can be utilized in order to um, unlock I guess you could say different aspects of the underlying structures that it surrounds. Yeah, you know, it's it's more than just like this harness that's holding the muscle. I, you know, honestly, uh, Maddie is in uh, medical school for osteopathic medical school at Des Moines. Oh, and so she's doing her third year rotations right now and is about to go into fourth year and is almost done. And yeah. until I've seen that other side, you know, looking at some of the things that she's learning for osteopathic yeah. manipulation and even doing some of the osteopathic manipulation on me. It was like, wow, you know, there's, there's something here that yeah. I never considered before. And the, you know, the interesting thing is I, I look at it from the physiology research, like it, it's sometimes hard to get some of those studies funded because what is the actual scientific question that you're going to be answering? Right. Because, you know, how is it going to better, uh, health? But, you know, when you look at it from a pain relief standpoint, the potentials could be enormous. And Absolutely. you know what I never... What I never really understood before, and I, you know, I just read a couple of review papers prior to this, just so I didn't sound like a, a babbling buffoon, which is still probably going to be the case. But uh, looking at fascia as like an active signaling type of network, like I didn't realize when you contorted and you manipulated the fascial tissue, like the the factors, you know, the active signaling factors, whether it be inflammation or different cytokines, or even some are saying like piezoelectric forces, like, you know, mechanical yeah. force transmitted into electrical energy can be transmitted down into the, the, the structures that they surround, like the muscle bellies and things like that. And, you know, up until recently, like that, that unlocks a whole different game of how you integrate this, this, um, tissue with the use of the other muscles, you know? Yeah. And, and so I guess, uh, what was, you know, when you were starting to understand how fascia is integrated, like I, I assume, or I, I'm guessing, you know, one of the journeys that most of us go through is we do something, we, you know, we foam roll for the first time and suddenly we feel better and go, Oh, okay. That was kind of cool. <laughs> you yeah. know, but you know, <laughs> when you really started to dive into the different world of, of, you know, rolfing, which is the manipulation of the connective tissue. You know, what is it like, do you focus on a specific mechanism of the fascia in order to at least elicit, you know, different strength gains or different muscle movements, or do you just more go by the, the function of the human itself? Yeah. So it depends on what the client or patient uh, comes to us for. So if somebody's coming to us for pain relief, it would be one course of action. If somebody comes to us for uh, performance enhancement, um, that would be a different, you know, role, you know, route entirely. But what's interesting, the, the thing that's un the uniting factor is that there's always going to be a manipulation piece. And we want to teach that to people because the uh, mechanical interface with the tissue uh, elicits that mechanical transduction, that sort of 
response into the deeper layers of tissue. Uh, sometimes it's a visceral response we want. Sometimes it's a uh, just a, a muscular response, but sometimes it's a system-wide response. So if somebody comes to us with fibromyalgia or one of these um, kind of curious um, diagnoses that really are kind of like catch-all, we want to really explore the origins of those um they're, they're usually not always uh, the right diagnosis. Um, they're usually a cascade effect from several traumas that never got treated. And so we want to kind of peel back that onion, figure out what the root cause of things are, and then go from there. But uh, it's very exciting to be able to work with people who, um, you know, one hour it's pain relief, the next hour it's, you know, like really heavy hitting strength work. And uh, again, the unifying factor is both will require manipulation to get sort of that benefit. And it's exciting. Different types. Yeah. I I just remember, you know, uh, when I was doing CrossFit for a while, that was sort of my my first uh, introduction to that. You know, because you look at some of the CrossFit gens. I mean, you got people that are like stretching bands over different muscle or doing, you know, the voodoo floss or whatever. And they got these, you know, you'll see someone with one of those like basically a rolling pin let's be honest you know they're paying a lot of money for a rolling pin and they're just like rolling their neck and rolling their back and rolling their forehead for all you know and then you got the foam rollers that look like some dungeness torture material with all the spikes and stuff in there you know and uh and then you got some people with the east aim units that are you know focusing more on the muscular activation and so they're just sitting there just and and, you know, that was my my first, I guess, real introduction other than, you know, when, in college when I was skiing, of course, we had the PTs and stuff that we would work with. But that's kind of a different um, system because you would go there if you got hurt. You know, it wasn't really a lot of whole, a, a lot of prehab type of work, I guess what you would call it. And, yeah, and, uh, and the East units, not to interrupt, but like uh, what is the medium that you're using to get to the muscle? And that's where it's really kind of key, like if it's healthy, and this is kind of fun for the audience, if you have areas that are sort of stuck, dehydrated, or otherwise not communicating with the deeper layers, an e-stim tool is a cool diagnostic. Um, it won't work with everybody. And if you have an area that's disconnected, you won't get a response. It'll feel fuzzy. It'll feel cloudy. It will not elicit a contraction. So it's kind of a fun diagnostic tool for those in the audience and uh, sometimes we'll use it as a before and after, um, but it is cool because, like, let's say you have pain in an area. Back in the day, they would slap on the east in, in a, by, you know, to almost, like, break down that sort of um, neural connection. And I don't really like that use, that application. Back to the old ab belt to get that six-pack. Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> when you're not even communicating instead of creating a neural pathway, you're almost breaking it down uh, or, or creating this, oh. you're you know what I mean? That's an so interesting it, way to look at it because, and, and so I bring that up because a lot of therapeutic approaches, you know, whether it be for spinal cord rehabilitation or something like that, you can use e-stim or ultrasound type of activation of the muscle to try to, yeah. you know, recreate the motor units or recreate, re-strengthen the motor units that are being weakened due to the degenerative disease or due to the the blunt force injury. But it brings up an interesting idea though, that if you're essentially overriding the natural neural recruitment, right? Because you're, you're essentially providing your own descending, uh, efferent input. Do you desense or do you create a desensitization of the actual motor units that are going down to, or I, I guess I should say the, the efferent uh, nerve pathways that are going down and releasing. And so that way you get almost these potentiated muscular units. So basically like if we just go through a motor unit, so basically you have neurons that originate up in the, up in the brain and then they travel down and they synapse, you know, near the spinal cord and then they travel down and then they reach their end muscular target. And when they go to release a signal, they, you know, they, they sprinkle on a little bit of magic neural dust uh, that we call like neurotransmitters onto the muscle. And then it starts a cascade that then elicits a contraction from the muscle. But the more you use it, the more it can become trained in order 
to potentiate it. So it requires less of a neural signal in order to get the same response. But if we take the idea of that e-stim unit being just stuck on there and it's just going pop, 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 and it's making your arm go like this, then there's no need to necessarily have a neural origin of the signal go through, but yet you'd still be getting the potentiation of the synapses, perhaps if it was an electrical uh, mediating event, you know, if, if it didn't require the neurotransmitters to get the, the potentiation. And so that would almost work backwards. Exactly. So this is, brings up an interesting point when we get clean, you know, cause a lot of people end up doing bodybuilding, right? They do, they work out in order to look good. So they'll follow like a classic bodybuilding model. So they'll do a lot of bicep, tricep, uh, chest back, but they fail to kind of integrate. They fail to do compound movements. And so we'll see a lot of compromise in those structures then because the bicep has, you'll get tears in the bicep, the pec, the, you know, the tricep rarely. Uh, but it, it's fascinating because it's the individual component is stronger than the sort of unit. So I just find, sorry, it's stronger than the collective. And you'll see, again, failures in their systems often. And it's really curious when you go back and you're like, well, what happened? Let me see your programming. And it's usually a very classic, you know, bro style. Five by workout. five. Yeah, literally. But push press or yeah, push press. Right? And you did the same workout for, you know, seven years and you wonder what happened uh, when you picked yeah. up a piece of paper and your bicep tore. And it's kind of usually something very basic like that. It's, it's shocking. But going back to the East End, like if you just kind of have this sort of island of, of contraction and it's not been communicating as a system, and this goes back to the fascial net, I, I, I get nervous about that. Um, can you truly then control that area? Uh, can you control it as a system? Um, are we doing uh, our clients and you know people on Instagram a disservice by not explaining the sort of potential uh, hazards of overriding the nervous system. And that's a question for you as much as it is, you know, for all of us. Yeah. Who kind of yeah. yeah. It's a, uh, you know, I should probably throw out the counter argument before, you know, everyone is scream is everyone screaming at the camera going, but you know, when you potentiate yeah. the muscles, then it takes less neurotransmitters. So a person with a weakened neural, you know, a weakened neural network going to, let's say that biceps. Now the biceps requires less, neurotransmitter in order to get the same response. And so you could potentially, you know, have a strengthened response. I just wanted to throw that counter argument before I completely forgot it. And, uh, someone is screaming at me as is, you know, you're going to get screamed at either way. When I found out oh, podcasts, sure. you're always going to be wrong, which is fantastic. But you brought up yeah. something oh. and it, it matched up with, I just, I saved a quote from this review paper. I, I'll, I'll post it somewhere. Um, but it says that fascia is the only tissue that modifies its consistency when under stress and which is capable of regaining its elasticity when subjected to manipulation. So it's malleable. And you, you brought up the idea of the, the fascia itself being dehydrated, right? Yeah. And, or, or there's local pockets. And, and what I'm wondering is, do you ever see, I mean, and, and again, I guess whether or not you have a biometric screen to actually understand the hydration or if you just sort of have an idea of perhaps a hypothesized mechanism of it, do you, you know, do you think that perhaps there's different pockets of hydration levels across? Cause I assume the hydration level isn't uniform across the entire syncytium of, which is just like a network, um, across the entire syncytium of the fascia throughout the entire body. Yeah. I mean, there's different aquaporins and different water transporters across different areas absolutely and so depending on different areas um you'll kind of run into what we call densification if the tissue basically is deeply adherent and doesn't have a glide and slide that's usually kind of your guide and you can kind of test you know there's some areas of the body that should have glide and slide other areas like your palm and your your feet which have thick aponeuroses with really tightly woven retinacular cutis that that like the roots of the skin down to the deeper layer are meant to not glide and slide. But like, for oh, example, yeah. I saw that the, the plantar fascia was uh, like the most stiff fascia yeah. of all of the, it better all be, of right? the 
Yeah, I mean, well, who knows with our these cloud shoes that we wear nowadays? But. Well, that's true. Yeah, we can get into a different topic there, like how you know foot coffins, otherwise known as shoes, foot coffins. <laughs> they really rob us of a lot of you know innovation and and you know communication with the ground. That ground force reaction, um, you know. But going back to your question, like the body is a hydraulic system as much as it is a mechanical system, and there's so much fluid, but it's different types of fluid. It's like glycosaminoglycans, the most famous of which is hyaluronin. You'll see hyaluronin in creams. You'll see hyaluronin in, you know, all sorts of things. But the best way, obviously, to produce hyaluronin is ourselves naturally. And depending on its molecular weight, hyaluronin has different purposes in the body. And it's super wonderful because it provides the glide and slide. Um, but again, some areas, the body's, the body's own lube for anyone. That yeah, it can be. That's, uh, <laughs> not, not, not that kind thing. of lube that you're thinking of, but like, yeah. uh, it's, a, it's found in like eyes and joints and stuff. And it, it's, yeah. fluid. It, it's kind of cool because too much of a good thing can be terrible. And it goes back to the question you posed to me earlier, uh, with stiffness and too much stiffness is terrible. The, too much laxity though is also terrible so there is that happy medium that the body has and uh, when we run over tissue for example that that feels like it is stuck and for us as practitioners you'll almost feel like it's like dry plastic so if you go for a cross fibering action and it literally almost crinkles as if you have like dry sea plastic in the sun uh, it, it just changes. <laughs> it changes. Old person leathery skin. I just think of. And that's a different topic too, by the way. Which I'd love yeah, to but that's it. different. I'm just, but, that's what I'm um, picturing. Just this leathery human. Yeah, but it's subcutaneous. It's like underneath and you can kind of feel this person's uh, pain is usually associated uh, generally with this type of densification above or below the site of pain. And it's fascinating because you know, it, that's the kind of stuff we want to teach. We want people to kind of not be slaves to the foam roller because I loved your question there because it is something that people get, you know, frustrated with. They're like, how many hours a day do I have to do soft tissue work? And well, that's, really you know, that, that's, that's the like, I wouldn't say my frustration with, I, you know, I, I'll fully admit that for a while I had almost like a hostility towards the soft tissue work because it was like this cult that came through, you know, but I had, I had viewed it from this, you know, naive CrossFit type of experience. And then yeah. I, you know, since went on to do powerlifting and jujitsu and all that kind of stuff. But, but, um, you know, it was like every time you had to come in and you had to foam roll and you had to like floss, you know, do this voodoo flossing, which is basically where yeah. you just like tie some, you basically put a tourniquet around a muscle and you just like go through the range of motion and it's supposed to, you know, hold part of it and then just create what they call traction or something like that. And, uh, and then you had, you know, all the other different torture devices that they had. But if you didn't do it for like a few days, you just stiffened right up, you know, and it's almost like it was almost like I after I did the mobility, I felt better or and I felt more mobile and perhaps my joints were more lax. So like deadlifts or something, some some movement where stiffness might actually be a helpful factor for you. You know, those would go down, but the rest of them would go up just from the movement. Um, but it almost felt like then if I didn't do it, I was in worse shape than I was prior. Yeah. And so is there, is there like a balance of if you do too much, does it actually make it like you dependent on the soft tissue work in order to function or, which I guess that's a, it's a, almost a different concept because like, I remember when I was personal training individuals, you know, they wanted to do six weeks of personal training, lose the weight, and then they were hoping that that would be a permanent fix. And it's like, well, no, yeah. you kind of have to, you know, grease the groove a little bit. Yeah. yeah. But is there, is there like a, a loading phase where you have to like, okay, we get really got to get you limber and then we're just going to, you know, fall back to a, a more reasonable type of thing. Or is that not yeah. something? In so the I guess it depends on whether you come to the table with an injury. Um, but we find less is more. And that's one of those things that, you know, there's been some brilliant minds in the industry who've kind of like Leon Chaitao, one of my uh, mentors and teachers who's unfortunately since passed away, uh, really brought that home to me. Um, it's kind of like an object in space. You know, you push it, you change its orbit. Uh, it doesn't take much to change the body. I know it sounds bizarre, 
but especially there's there's so many mechanoreceptors on the surface of the skin, just underneath the skin, in superficial fascia that really respond to light touch as much as they respond to deeper touch. And so different things are necessary for different people. But I think less is more. Like before working out, just wake up the tissue that you're intending on working. So I like using a scraping tool, like washa. I don't even sometimes touch a foam roller. And uh, it, is, that, is that similar to the, uh, what was it called? The Graston, I think I've heard yes, it called yes, before. Yeah, yeah. I remember I went to the chiropractor a few times, um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I, I have mixed feelings about chiropractors. It kind of depends on who you I, go to. You do. Like, we can talk about that. And, uh, he pulled out like this metal thing and he goes, and he gave me a towel. You know, I remember he was a super cool guy. He gave bite me a towel. On. Yeah. He said, go ahead, bite on this. And I was, You're kidding. what I was are you going to do to me here, dude? And oh, he pulls God. out this metal rod looking thing. And I thought, what? you know, which hole are you going to stick that in? But then he, you know, just starts like <laughs> scraping yeah. the, the hell out of my arm. I think it was. And it just was like, you know, just completely bloodshot because of all of the, you know, the, yeah. the, the vasculature that was, or the capillaries that were just exploded in my arm. Exactly. And is it really necessary? That's the thing that we kind of all are, you know, there's been a lot of research to say that it's not necessary. And I think of a Grassentech tool or Gua Sha tool as like an Etch-A-Sketch you know, you've made a drawing. It's in your superficial fascia. It's no, it's oh. not imprinted into the deep fascia. But I just quickly, multi-directionally, will etch a sketch. You know, I, I erase that drawing and I start with a new one. Um, yeah, because yeah. I, I assume it brings in like a little bit of swelling, which is actually you know a good thing when you're working out. Are you trying to do that? Like, I don't really think we need to elicit that type of severe response. So getting into like oh, the blaster and like, why do we need to bruise the tissue? I think that that's severe and I don't really agree with that. And a lot of my colleagues who are far more esteemed than I am uh, would probably back me up on that. But there, it just, you don't know what you're doing. You could create scar tissue in an area that, uh, you know, just, Yes, you're going to bring neutrophils and you're going to kind of bring a response to the area, but did, was that really necessary to free it up or was it really just superficial fascia adhesions that could have been easily uh, mobilized with some, uh, you know, cross fiber action, glide and slide, uh, pin and stretch of the voodoo floss? Like, do we need to be so severe? Uh, and that's well, actually that's what, that's what Yeah, that, that's what I noticed especially when Maddie was doing some of the um, osteopathic manipulations. Um, she was trying Are some of that. I'm very curious. What's that? What's that? Are heavy-handed? Um, she was, no, she was doing just like holding the hip in a certain place because I had done something to my hip at a jujitsu tournament, I think. Um, and she was just, you know, it, I was almost like rolling my eyes at the time because like, you know, she's got me on a table and I'm just like, you know, laying prone on this table and she's just holding my leg off to one side and then you wait, you know? And you know, so you like, you, you promote it or you put it, I don't even know. I'm just talking out of my butt right yeah, now. No, no, you, to hear your perspective. I like that. Yeah. Like you, you just hold your leg in one position and then you put a little bit of force and then you wait for like 45 seconds or a minute and then you let it go. And I was like, that's it. But then it actually like it worked because, you know, I was so used to just, you know, I, I saw the chiropractor that's just like rubbing the hell out of my arm until it's basically bleeding. And I got these cold lasers going on my leg at the same time. And like I got my, you know, my foot tied up in this thing and it's going behind my head. And so like we're at the point of like almost tearing. And, and, and so that's what I associated with mobility. Yeah, And suddenly it's like this minor movement with just this little bit of, you're almost just promoting it to do what it can normally do. And suddenly like the performance was exponentially better. Like if I grab a foam roller and I just do a couple passes, one, like one, two, three, four, like great. If I do 30, then my legs just bruised and that doesn't help. Exactly. And less is more. And that's the thing that's so fascinating. Um, you know, going back to like what to do, like, let's say you have idiopathic pain. You woke up with, you know, shoulder pain or back pain. The natural like inclination would be to rub those areas or to kind of work on them for some reason. But we'd like to call those areas victims and we have to find the perpetrator who, who beat them up. 
And it's interesting because, you know, this is kind of an analogy my friend Sue Hitzman comes up with or came up with a while ago, but you wouldn't go up to the victim and punch them in the face. But yet we use these. Have you been to Seattle? Yeah. (laughs) Good point. Good point. Uh, But you want to find the perpetrator. And usually the perpetrator is far away from the site of pain. And so, um, you know, back pain, one of my uh, favorite mentors, Carlos Stecco, had this fantastic study a few years ago on treatment of back pain, especially idiopathic back pain that was not caused by direct trauma. And nine times out of 10, it was treated significantly, like, like perfectly reduced to the point where the patient reported like they were fully better by just working on the appendages. So working on the legs and the arms. And you know, I, I heard that actually this morning in the gym, uh, one of my good friends hadn't been in the gym for a while and I saw him and, you know, I said, you know, where the hell have you been? And, uh, and he said, you know, he hurt his back and he had some recurring back issues for a while and he went to the PT and they had him doing all this stuff with his arms and his legs and it was pretty much everywhere except his back, right? which was like the painful area. And then he said it it got miraculously better, which was interesting. And, and I, I go back, I remember in undergrad, I had a professor that was teaching anatomy and physiology, you know, which I famously had to retake despite, (laughs) (laughs) despite getting a PhD in physiology, but, uh, uh, you know, it takes a while to, to really sink in. And, uh, she was talking about how some, I, I don't know if it was ever published. I, you know, I don't know if there's studies on it. I haven't looked at it, but talking about essentially though, that some peripheral, so, you know, peripheral areas of the body, whether it be the arm or the leg or something like that, that, you know, severe damage to some of them can start to pull on the tissue that's, you know, obviously creating this uniform coating around the entire body. And it would cause, you know, it could lead to, or be a factor for like TMJ, you know, temporomandibular jaw syndrome. And it turns out that the knot, you know, is somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of like if you're wearing a full body suit, let's say I'm kind of like standing up and I tug on this part of my t-shirt and if I don't expect that it's going to create a cascade effect, especially uh, in, in serape effect, like the contralateral uh, action, we find that often. So like if you have a shoulder issue, we often look at the opposite hip. Um, if the lat has some dysfunction, we look at the opposite glute. Uh, that sort of communication line is where fascia is most highlighted. But you can't really understand that unless you really understand that this isn't like the uh, – musculoskeletal system that you studied in school, you and I studied something that was very, you know, void of connection. It just, we had this impression that, you know, the muscles held the bones together when we realized, first of all, that the muscles become bones and the muscles actually go into fascial expansions and they don't ever even attach to bone. Like the glute is famous for that. It blends into the IT band. Most of it is not connected to bone. And it's just, why do we teach that it is not fair to call it band syndrome like you know call it what it is it's usually glute dysfunction tensor fossa lata dysfunction uh and it's really we need to re-educate um and this is where like continuing education is the way to do it because a lot of us are already out of school but how do we kind of get up to date with some of this stuff and that's where i'm kind of obsessed you know my studio in dc align is kind of like an educational hub because I want to make it, you know, a place where people can come back and do continued education, but also not make it, I want it to be disarming enough where people can learn. If you're a lay person, if you're a professional, uh, learn through your own body as the conduit. And I, I have enormous respect for being able to successfully implement that into a business. I, you know, I think I've told you before, I, when I write, when I got out of undergrad, I started a, a gym. And, uh, and so I owned a gym and was doing personal training because I originally in college was doing personal training at an all women's gym at get in shape for women is what it was called. And, uh, you know, so I started this gym and I put it in a thousand square foot space in a strip mall. And then we got evicted in like two months or three months because of noise. (laughs) And, you know, I had this weird mix of like these postmenopausal women that were, you know, my core clientele. And then I had the athletes that wanted to just throw around 600 pounds and 800 pounds. And it was like, 
how do you, you clash those two together? But at the end of the day, you know, what I really wanted to do, and maybe it was just being in Green Bay, Wisconsin, wasn't the the market, you know, when beer and cheese are, are sort of a, a commodity of exchange there. And, uh, and, but I wanted to educate the, uh, I wanted to educate people that wanted to get interested in making themselves healthier. I don't want to just say like working out, it is working out. It's like one component of it, but at least, you know, what was weighing down was most of the clients just wanted to come in. They wanted to, you to tell them what to do and they don't want to ever think about it ever again. And then, yeah. you know, when you're, when you really want them to get better, then, well, it's bad for business because, because, uh, once you, you know, make them lose weight and you teach them how to do it on their own, you're never going to see them again, but, but uh, billboards, you know, they'll tell their friends and that's where, you know, yeah, that's where you need a bigger market than the, the cheese market that is, yeah. is Wisconsin. But, uh, you know, and so that's what you ended up driving me into academics is cause I wanted to, to do the science aspect of it. And I wanted to educate on the science aspect of it, but the the personal training studio just wasn't going to be the way to do it, but you found a way to, to do it. And through a, a pretty successful way, I would say. I'm kind of obsessed with that. And also, I'm also happy that you got into what you're doing. Cause you know, you impressed me genuinely when we first kind of met. Um, and it's something that, you know, to be that sort of intersection point, because my goal is to, you know, distill and democratize the research as, as, as much as I can as, as a small studio in Washington, D.C. But uh, we need people like you to conduct that research. And, you know, I like being part of it in the lab, but I certainly don't have the time, patience, or know-how to kind of write those research papers yet. Um, yeah. <laughs> but again, yeah. people like you are like really critical. And well, like I said, everyone can write or anyone can write a review paper. Like for sure. It, yeah. And, and I uh, think it would be kind of cool. I, yeah, I know, <laughs> but yeah, it's certainly a, uh, uh, academics can be its own worst enemy at times. You know, we want to do research that's promoted to the public. We, we create these huge paywalls for, to be able to access. And, and honestly, like for a while, our institution had no access to academic journals and it was, I was honestly questioning how can we even conduct scientific research? You know, we had to, honestly, we had to go through different medias and I'm not going to, you know, say the the websites that it is, but I will say that you can find websites that will go past the paywall barrier and give you access to uh, the different research articles because why should, I don't believe this is me and maybe I'll yeah. get in trouble. That's fine. But I don't believe anyone should have to pay $50 to get a single research article yeah. when if you're trying to look up a topic, you go into PubMed or you go into Google Scholar, you type it in and you want to look through 30 different papers, you know, yeah. and read different parts of each of them. But if you did it without access to an institutional license, then that's like, uh, you know, a couple hundred dollars, exactly. if not more. And yet we're doing publicly funded research, which is coming from your own tax dollars to begin yeah. with. So you're already paying for the research to be done, but you can't access the results. I, 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 yeah. Triggered, it, triggered. But <laughs> that's also why in my industry, it, it's bro science is pervasive. It's really hard to get concrete sort of uh, evidence packed research accessible accessibility to it and it's a problem because you know there's a lot of people who promote a lot of scary things just scroll on your feed you'll find you know dozens but these people are very popular and uh, you just have to be you know steadfast in, in teaching it that's why it's important to be loud like a loudspeaker uh, <laughs> but you know what sells on Instagram now, unfortunately it's not nerdiness um, as yeah, much bro as science you know. sells that that we can admit Bro science yeah. does sell Crazy. and there's certainly an aspect to it that works, but I think For I've her. always said understanding, like understanding how something actually works mechanistically, like then you can just exploit it however you want. It, it, very true. Very true. And you know, if some of them kind of like, I don't know, I think there's some people who truly just don't, they think that, you know, if there was a, um, you know, nefarious purpose to their you know, marketing, then of course, some of these people just think that they're right. And that's, you know, you can't fault them for that. <laughs> they just really <laughs> think they're right. It's right. Cause it worked for me. Yeah. The class. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
<laughs> you know, buy my plan for like, you know, two hundred dollars and you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's like uh, a lot of us who, you know, at the ripe age of like eighteen or nineteen lost a huge amount of weight, you know. I lost like 150 pounds, but it was when I was 18, 19 years old, which an 18, 19 year old, 315 pound male, what works for that is certainly not what's going to be working for, you know, a 40 year old. Yeah. Or someone else that, that, that doesn't have that, you know, I could say I had 3000 ish calories of just, if I sat there, if I did nothing, that's how much I'm burning. Yeah. And when you don't have that luxury. It is still a transformation story. But the fact that the tissue was able to change at that age. But what's interesting, what we're starting to realize is, um, you know, fascia and aging is a is a, a really curious topic. Again, going back to Dr. Steckler's research, collagen fiber it, it gets laid down with every you know repetitive motion, and some of that collagen fiber never leaves. And there's collagen type one, collagen type three, collagen type six. I mean, there's a lot. Um, but some of that is like never erased. And so it creates more, uh, fibrous connective tissue where, you know, we'll see much more as people age, less sort of fluid infiltration in tissue and less kind of glide and slide and more fiber. But what we've seen also is that you can remodel that tissue over time. And so we want to kind of encourage people those especially who've been athletes and you know you see this all the time they've been really amazing athletes and then when they retire they stop playing their sport and they can barely move and so that tissue remodeling is especially important for them um, but again high performers tend to bear the brunt of you know, it's not that they wore their body out it's that they literally become almost like compartment syndrome um, and it's, mm. it's really something we have to teach more and it's like too, fashion, too self too self-protective yeah and tissue that's where soft tissue interventions are key you can literally redesign the body and that's what we really want to teach people like you don't have to be imprisoned by this like pinata that you've created um you know this paper mache that's now dried you can change it and it's kind of exciting uh it might not be perfect but it can certainly operate at a level that was close to what it used to Yeah. Perfect. is subjective anyways. Right. But I I did have a question and and I'm wondering if you have experience with it. Uh, You were talking about transformations and what came to mind was obviously obesity transformation, but do you like, does obesity itself, because obviously the fat cell or the adipose tissue would be sitting on top or superficial to the fascia. Right. But I assume some of that adipose tissue gets incorporated into so, the fascia itself yeah adipose tissue and this is where i wish i could kind of show you some imagery of what we did the dissection we did in Guben, germany for uh the body worlds exhibit that is now on display in berlin uh but hopefully we'll go on global tour again i don't know if you remember body worlds that kind of came around about you know 15 20 years ago but yeah yeah, yeah. So the plastinarium is where we kind of, the fascial net plastination project, we did the world's first uh, full body fascial dissection. And we also created other sort of um, examples of those layers. Because what we have to show is that it's a little bit more complex than that. You have the superficial adipose tissue, you have a superficial fascial membrane, you have deep adipose tissue, uh, fascia lata, you know, we get into like perifascia. There's many layers to it. And when you get somebody who has healthy functioning um, adipose tissue, it looks really beautiful, uniform, like the globules line up uh, with people who have um, lipedema and sort of like um, pathology in that tissue. It really looks uh, slimy, disconnected, no order. And it's, fascinating right like the body what happened what led to that and that's where we're kind of finding that tissue sequestration like when you have densification around areas and the macrophages couldn't come and do their job of like cleaning up cells that were distorted and like messed up then you have these pockets of you know pretty much like dead tissue and it's really 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 interesting um that's where it goes back to like you know, what can we do with people who have like morbid obesity 
uh, sometimes manual therapy, you know, we, we know now it has such impacts on muscle tissue, just vibration alone uh, could create like awakening of muscle tissue. Imagine e-stim and, and all these other things as interfaces in addition to diet modification and exercise. Like we could change these people's lives. Like we should do a show on this and make like millions. What are we doing? Uh, <laughs> yeah, what are we doing here? These are <laughs> doing a podcast for all ten listeners. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, but like these are ideas, right? And these are ideas that I don't have that many clients and patients, unfortunately, who have morbid obesity. But the ones who I do have who are on that spectrum, I you better believe I do weird shit to them. Thank God they're <laughs> patient. But we've seen some immense changes. Like where their tissue. People in their fucking 70s, pardon my own language, sorry. But where you see tissue change, the dermis has restored its elasticity and its contractility and its capacity for like like force transmission, force you know absorption. That's cool. That's something that shouldn't be happening. They should be getting saggier as they get older. But because we've given them external uh, mechanical force over time, that tissue adaptation, thank God for Davis's law, uh, has allowed the tissue to change and it gets really, really exciting. And that's the kind of stuff that really kind of gets me on the edge of my seat. You see me, I'm like literally <laughs> going into the screen. <laughs> what's Davis's, what's Davis's law? I feel like I so should It's like Wolf's law. Like look it up. Wolf's I'm law. It up right now. Yeah. Uh, oh, used in anatomy and physiology. See, this is where I'm, I'm a fraud. I'm sure. <laughs> I just want like, oh, to like, you like, back. You're like, ah. <laughs> Every time someone comes up, they're like, yeah, you got that totally wrong. Like, you know, there's limits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just good at looking stuff up. I don't know. No, uh, I, cool. I'm good at wrestling goats and sticking brain implants in there. <laughs> Used in anatomy and physiology to describe how soft tissue models along imposed demands. Oh, how soft tissue models along imposed demands. I should yeah. have the phonetics of that correct. Yeah, and it's again, it's it will respond based on the external inputs. And that's where we love using things like mechanostimulation, mechanotransduction, uh, to kind of elicit that change. And, you know, with people with osteoporosis, osteopenia, thank God for Wolf's Law. And we know that with, you know, resistance training, with a, a number of things, we can actually get osteoblasts to kind of wake up and, and help build more bone. Similar fibroblasts in connective tissue help build and print more tissue. And, yeah, you know, the here I am looking at Wolf's Law. Yeah, look at Wolf's Law. Yeah, no, 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 yeah it's cool. the same thing for the bone. Oh, I see the relationship. So basically, Wolf's Law is saying that you like strengthen the bone if there's a particular load on it. Yeah, which we've known for a long time that if like, like for example, plyometrics can strengthen bones like to totally. a point. Yeah, but and but you know, guess what happens to the soft tissue that houses that bone? You know, and that's what we have to kind of really and thank God this is like out there. It's just not discussed very much. But, you know, if you guys pick up David Lasondak's book, Fascia, What It Is and Why It Matters, it's not a big read. It's kind of – it's a light book, but it will give you such a great understanding of fascia and its applications and why we're so obsessed with it. Like I've been able to design my business where physicians refer patients to me before they even refer them to physical therapists. Like what? Like this is kind of profound. You know, like – because they've seen our success rates. Um, I, I get a kick out of though. It says that um, Davis's law, its first earliest known appearance was by a book written by John Joseph Nutt. And the only reason I say that is because in the last podcast episode, we were talking about memory transfer through cannibalism in worms. So like eating a worm. So like yeah. basically there was that, you know, that idea that you could eat RNA of another individual and gain their memory. Yeah, body snatchers. Uh, yeah, which was from a guy named Richard Seaman. And so we've went from Richard Seaman to John Joseph Nutt. So <laughs> it's the wide We're on a roll here. Yeah, so, so with Davis's law, basically, you know, the idea that uh, different tissue loading techniques or different tissue manipulations, I should say, can elicit an adaptive or perhaps a maladaptive response. It looks like there's, you know, a lot of different mechanisms of, you know, inflammation, TGF-1, or there's TGF-beta-1, and there's neurosensitization, inflammatory cytokines, resilience. There's, there's a whole little schematic I'm looking at. But essentially, nonetheless, as with most physiological processes, you do a stimulation, you get a release of a bunch of factors, and they lead yeah. to either 
changes that are adaptive or maladaptive. But what I was wondering though, with the obesity stuff, you know, because I have, I still have lingering extra skin from when I was, you know, super obese, you know, and, and, and so I've always had, you know, like a, a four pack on top of, or like a four pack with like some mush underneath. And, and, uh, and if you don't mind me like probing, you know, alive or whatever this is considered, uh, is it around the navel or is it around the entire sort of waistband? Just, just below the navel, I guess. Yeah. And so that's where it would be kind of curious for you. I don't know if you've ever tried it using, uh, techniques like scraping e-stim as a precursor to exercise just to give that tissue some input. Um, well, that's what... That's what I'm wondering is, is, you know, if, if you see a lot, because a lot of people, you know, whether it be through pregnancy or whether it be through severe obesity, you lose the the weight, but then you have the sagging skin that it never goes away. And, you know, and, and good for those people that just, you know, bear it out for everyone to, to see, but you know, it's, it's obviously a self-conscious issue. You're not going to lie and say that it's not, it would be naive. But, you know, one of the things that I did notice, at least when skiing, oftentimes that area was somewhat vulnerable because it's kind of in between where the tights and the jacket kind of come together. And so it would like literally get freeze, like frost nip, you know, frost bit, oh, but to the point yeah. where it's red and, and stuff like that. But those were the times when it was the tightest. And then yeah. when it wasn't cold all the time, then it would start to sag a little bit more. And yeah. so I'm wondering if like, uh, if temperature is one of the response or, you know, one of the stimuli that might be able to elicit some tightening of the tissue, at least a temporary tightening. Well, I mean, tissue. you know, what is temperature due to water? And we can get into like, you know, that's very interesting, right? Where it will sort of sol- gel before it solidifies. Obviously you didn't get to the point where you were frozen, but um, it is interesting. <laughs> yeah, I know one could argue, right? Um, Northern Michigan is, or Northern yeah, Minnesota prior, gets you process, you look fabulous, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, you should see the toes, no. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But it is interesting. I would love for you to try um, the temperature. I've not explored that much, but I find uh, stimulation, whether it's uh, through mechanical load, through uh, tensional load, through you know uh, electric load, one could argue. Um, is really, really effective. But then it's also like you have to give it purpose and there has to be connection to the deeper layer. So again, not just using e-stim and just kind of sitting there and watching, you know, Netflix, but using e-stim as a precursor to exercise where you're actually stimulating a contraction that goes through the layers. And, you know, we use skin as a diagnostic tool. And this is where, you know, Matt probably uh, backed me up on this for um, from an osteopathic lens skin can tell you a lot and um, if the skin looks like it's disconnected from the deeper layer so if you contract your bicep and you can't see that through the tissue no matter what your age is there's something going on there and that's usually something that we would like to resolve uh, is there edema there is there some sort of you know or is the retinacular cutis just completely like the roots of the skin uh, that go through that you know superficial fascial layer into the deep adipose tissue like, is that kind of like offline that can remodel? And that's what we want to kind of prove in the lab. Uh, Cause that hasn't been done yet. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be cool because it creates almost a unique uh, condition where you've separated the, I mean, obviously all skin is mobile around, um, around the fascia and around the skin or around the yeah. muscles itself. But there still is that underlying connection. Like if you twist your, if you take your skin and you twist your forearm, like we can still, we can still connect basically parts of the elastin fibers that are going from the skin to the, the fascia. But I imagine with the extra skin parts, the, the amount of lability of it in order to, you know, really stretch it out goes beyond where we could have a physical hard connection, perhaps. I mean, that's just a hypothesis. And then the question is, can you not restore that? And that's where, you know, we've done it, but what have we really done? You know, um, yeah, yeah. we need to prove it. Um, and that's where, you know, we can talk, <laughs> you know, for future, like I really want, and I was actually talking to a, a client about this earlier in 2023, 2024, probably more like the latter, uh, to be able to kind of partner with a lab and study this, you know, cause this is, has to be a, obviously probably more performance lab, 
but we need to kind of see this and we need to be able to, you know, are we going to use ultrasound? Uh, what are we going to use as a means of kind of uh, comparing before and after besides just, you know, the visual objective, um, you know, before and after. I think it's nice to see what the fuck's going on underneath the skin. Yeah. It's a, it's a call to action to refund exercise physiology because <laughs> for, for anyone that's unaware, exercise physiology funding has been like, <laughs> just taking a nosedive compared to some of the other medical sciences and you know for for i guess known reasons for, you know to be able to say what exactly is it going to be able to do in order to better human health besides just making people exercise but these are the things that you can get you know with this research you can understand how you can better someone's you know, self-esteem and, and well-being by able by able to understand the mechanism by which you know loose skin can reintegrate back into that fascial syncytium and start to tighten up again. Yeah, but that's a and that's just we, the we can even go beyond. It's why is it just aesthetic? That's the conduit. That's the communication line. That's the highway for so many systems. And you know, is it just the skin that's compromised? Is it not the adipose tissue? And that's yeah, where. Yeah. Uh, we have to kind of explore that. And I think it's, there could be really good funding if we just get the right people. You know, it's, it's, uh, go it, how many this would be interested in this? You know, they funded so much of the research that we've done on, uh, the sept on the face and like the compartments of the, you know, this is a really critical area. And I don't think the solution is just cutting it, grafting the skin. And, you know what I mean? Like, I think we can get smarter than that because I think that those implications are severe. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole other side of it is I'm, I'm always curious. Um, I think we underestimate the network, um, connectome, I guess we could say a, a network connectome that exists within the tissue layers, you know, as we, as we start to find these different ohms, whether it's the grantome or the, or not the grantome, that's like how you fund things, but, um, whether it's the genome or the proteome or the, the different omics, you know, coming together and, and, you know, when we're removing, like just blanketly cutting off a big thing of tissue, there's obviously secondary signaling pathways that are all obtained within there. And to say that every individual protein or component within that tissue is only acting in an autocrine type of fashion within itself is naive. I mean, we know that paracrine actions happen all over the place where you yeah. can have one local factor released and then it goes and it has an effect somewhere else. And so, yeah. I don't know, but perhaps that's for another episode because I mean, we're already good, at like almost an hour. Like <laughs> <laughs> we we got to have a part two. We definitely do. We definitely do. And it's funny because I'm about to go to uh, the University of Padua for the 800th year anniversary of the uh, opening of the dissection theater there. So this is the uh, world's first dissection theater where all the greats did their dissection. And um, it's called the Fascia Winter School. And it's kind of amazing because it's like it's like Hogwarts. It's so cool. But you're Hogwarts going to, of tissue. Yeah, yeah. You go dead bodies. It's so cool because everybody brings the latest research there. Um, and we just had the Fascial Research Congress in Montreal. And the, the studies that and the sort of research papers that came and then were introduced there were mind-blowing things on like fascia and cancer fascia and you know fibromyalgia fascia and depression just like things that like you know finally were proving things and proving that fascia is not only a um, you know uh, tensional fabric and a connective tissue but it's also like an emotional fabric because depending on how we feel it changes. It can really make your life great or it can make your life miserable. You better not go for that PR if you had a shitty night's sleep and you broke up with your girlfriend because that ain't going to work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, well, I mean, actually, it might work. Really right? pull that <laughs> if, you're on, if you're on the losing end of that battle. I was say. <laughs> yeah. If you're if you're the one that spearheaded it, you're, for once you finally <laughs> get the freedom. But yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. But it is well, interesting, hey, you know. Yeah. Well, well, Hey, we, we, I got to wrap it up here because I got to jump out to, to jujitsu uh, as usual. Cause, Cause I, I always record the episodes like right before then. So I end every yeah, episode. That's right. like, I, gotta go to I think that's a great place to say to be continued. Yeah. To be continued. We'll definitely have to have a, a part two and dive into some of the, I feel like we just like surface level went over some of the, 
terms of the mechanisms. Now we got to dive yeah. into the science aspect of it. But all right, so I will. Uh, so um, for anyone that is listening, follow the Neural Network www.theneuronetwork.org. Uh, follow us on Apple and have a podcast spotify and whatever podcast player that you have we probably are up on there give us a rating be honest and um yeah so have a good night <laughs>